Welcome to the Just Write Show, where you'll explore the world of the written word, from books to blogs, sales copy to screenplays, emails to essays, and everything in between. You'll discover the tips, tricks, and tactics the most successful writers in the world use every day. And now, here's your host, Travis Cody. Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Just Right Show. This is Travis Cody, and today joining me is Jacqueline Wales. For more than 35 years, Jacqueline Wales has explored human behavior and asked tough questions to discover hard truths. She believes in the power of fearlessness to create the career and life you want. As a motivational speaker, professional coach, and author of The Fearless Factor and other books, Jacqueline has helped countless people become more empowered, confident, and resilient. Her work focuses on leaders who dig into self-discovery, take accountability for the actions, and responsibility for their decisions. She challenges herself daily to be better and challenges her clients to do the same, pushing boundaries and breaking through excuses to achieve results. Jacqueline, thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure, Travis. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited to have you today because this, this concept of the fearless factor seems to be especially appropriate to the sort of new normal world that we live in. Yeah, there's, there's no question that, you know, we've been dealing with fear and uncertainty for, you know, certainly the last 10 months, uh, but I, I think beyond that as well. And, you know, it's, it's a hard thing for people who want to have a comfortable status quo type life and, and know where everything is. And right now it's just so unsettled uh, that it's raising all kinds of issues. Mm, that's for sure. So where did you come up with the concept of the fearless factor, because that's your brand. That's your. That's several of the books that you have. So, what was the the journey that led to that? Well, I think it it really started. You know, we're I'm a writer, so you know I like to look at the stories of our life, and the stories of my life uh, were really centered around a lot of fairly dysfunctional stuff, and uh, I had to really fight my way out of it over the years. So there was a tremendous fear that that was in me and surrounded me from from a very, very early age. I grew up with an alcoholic father who was also very violent and, uh, you know, does a lot to your self-esteem. And so you tend to recreate behaviors that aren't necessarily uh, healthy ones. And so, you know, the fear factor plays into that. Uh, And again, it has to do with you know, self-esteem, not feeling good enough, and so on and so forth. So over the years, I had lots of of experiences of challenging myself to step beyond the limitations that I had put there. And frankly, we all put there in in our own way. And uh, over the years, having to constantly confront these areas of insecurity, lack of confidence, not feeling credible, so on and so forth, Uh, really led me to a place eventually where a coach said to me, you know so much about fear. Why don't you write about it? And at the time I said, you know, what am I going to do? She said, tell your story. Just tell your story because it's an important story and lots of people will get it. Um, And if you can help them, you will. And so there it became. And it started out uh, in my coaching practice, which I came to quite late in life where I was working with women in midlife and I saw a lack of confidence. I saw issues with, with really stepping up and claiming authority. Uh, and so I started a company called Fearless 50s, which was a, a coaching company 
And then out of that evolved this idea of writing a book on fear and, and taking it to the next level. So the Fearless Factor was born approximately 10 years ago. Um, but you know, there it is. And, and now I'm working with the Fearless Factor at work because for the ten, last 10 years, I've worked with a lot of people in corporate and uh, I see a lot of the similar types of issues around confidence and credibility and self-doubt and, and not being able to take charge of their life. And ultimately my message is, let's help you be a better version of you because we all wanna be better versions of ourselves, no matter right. what, what image we have. So just the concept then of taking this knowledge that you have and you've created a coaching group, where in that process did you finally go, okay, now's the time for me to write a book about this? Well, oh, to be honest with you, it was really about credibility for me. Uh, I was starting a coaching practice with no corporate background. I didn't have any leadership training per se. Um, I had lived a life of, of great variety. I had been a writer, a singer. I had uh, done martial arts. I traveled the globe. I raised my family. And so there was a wealth of experiences that I was bringing to this thing. And when I took the coaching program, it was really to give myself some, some tools and insights that I could say, you know, I'm kind of qualified to talk about this stuff, gotcha. even though I've been talking about it for years <laughs> on, on an intuitive level. So the, the idea of, of writing a book around it became, how do you build credibility for a brand? Well, you write a book. And I, I'm not the first one to do that. I'm sure you've interviewed others who've done the oh, same. Man, there's some very, you know, Dr. Phil owes his, the only reason he was on uh, Oprah is because he had a book. Exactly. And look and what so that uh, ended up doing for him. Yeah. Um, so I knew that that was going to be a big piece. And so I invited 12 women to share their stories with me about being fearless in their lives. And then I, I created my own, all of my books have a strong personal narrative in them. Hmm. I will always tell my stories and, and relate them to whatever it is that I'm trying to talk about. And you'll see that in every single book. Um, my first book was a novel and it was semi-autobiographical. And I took the stories of three generations of women dealing with the impact of unwanted children and how it spilled over from generation to generation. And I ended up telling the story of my grandmother, my mother and myself. So the grandmother story was pretty much fictional because I didn't really have a whole lot of information on that. Um, but uh, the mother and the, the, the daughter story, uh, a lot of it was based on fact. So again, my personal narrative becomes a really important wow. piece of everything. So that was a, a fiction book, a semi-autobiographical fiction? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow. Uh, and it's called When the Crow Sings and it's set in Scotland. So it's, it's written in transliteration. So you, you get a good feel for the Scottish language inside of it. Because I was born in Scotland mm. and, you know, clearly have, have moved a long way from there over the years. But coming back around to the fearless factor and that whole piece about, you know, creating credibility for yourself. Uh, I think it's, it, you know, when people come to me and they say, why do you want to write a book? You know, I want to write a book. And I'll say, why do you want to write a book? You know, you, there's only two things you really want to book for, which is you've got something you really want to say, or you're building credibility for yourself mm -hmm. because books don't make you money. Very few books right. will make you money. My, my favorite quote is from um, Bob Proctor. 
And I, I don't know if this is attributed to him. That's just the, the place I saw it was attributed to him. But the, the quote was, I haven't made a dime from any of my best-selling books. And he's like, but I've made millions from being a best-selling author. <laughs> right. That's exactly right. I have yeah. made far more money from my speaking engagements, my coaching, my workshops, all of that good stuff than I ever would make out of books. I've given more books away than I've actually sold. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's pretty. So was the first book then uh, the not the, the fiction book, was that more of kind of like a cathartic exercise? And did you, did you, what was your process you used for that? Did you sit down and be like, I think I'm just going to tell these stories and it came together? Um, I had an idea. We're talking about the fearless factor here. Is that right? No, no. The first, the first one. The, the fi- first the, one. The, yeah. You're... I, you know, I had, a, as I said earlier, I had a very troubled history growing up and I knew that there were stories in my family. My mother had given birth to two children uh, before she married my father. And my grandmother had two children before, uh, you know, she got married for the first time. And I gave birth to a child outside of marriage too. And I started to look at this pattern and I thought there's stories here that I need to know about. Mm. And at this point, my mother's dead. My grandmother is dead. And of course I've got some aunts and I did some pretty serious research on, you know, the locale and, the things that people would be doing because the book starts in 1914 wow. and finishes in 1992. So, you know, there's a broad sweep. Yeah, it's a bit, a bit of a history there you got to go through. Definitely. I did the First World War, I did the Second World War, and the details had to be right. And uh, I did feel that a certain amount of the writing was my mother, you know, kind of hovering above me going, yep, that was the way it was. That's, <laughs> that's how it happened. Blah, blah. blah. Uh, and some of it was very visceral. I mean, people tell me it's a very dark story, and it is a dark story. But I think it's a kind of story that many, many families have have in their family. And as someone said to me after I'd written it, he said, you have written a classic intergenerational story here mm. that, you know, shows the patterns that, that, that come up in families over and over again until someone has the awareness to say enough already and that's what I tried to do with this book so the book was really an important piece for me to clear the decks because I I wanted to I I had been stepping away from that history uh, for quite some time so it was therapeutic you know it was it was definitely a catalyst for change and it gave my family a history that I've got four children in my life or now four young adults um, but they now have a history in written form that, you know, they can choose to share with their children or, or not. So with that know? first book, we'll get the, back to Fearless Factor. I'm just, I'm curious because it sounds like you were a very intuitive writer with that first book that you didn't, you didn't yeah. sit, I mean, had you read a bunch of intergenerational books or did you just kind of know, like, these are the three stories I'm going to tell them. And that just all sort of came together for you. No, it, it was 12 years in the making that book. Okay. Was- so that, that's a bit. Yeah. And the reason for that was it kept iterating. It started out as mm. an autobiography, then it was a memoir, then it was something else. And then finally, I realized that I wasn't getting to the heart of the characters and I needed to step above them. I needed to step out of family and see them as characters in a book. Right Now, I had done the UCLA writers program uh, back when. So that was, you know, I had great teachers at, at the time. Mm. And uh, I also hired people to work with me on 
on the book. And at a certain point, I hired someone who was known as the story coach because I wanted to really understand these people, not as relatives, but as people. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he worked with me over a three-year period. He didn't do any editing of the book. All he did was read it and point out that you need to look at this a little bit more deeply. And his big question was, what about this matters? So every time you're writing a scene, you want to know what about this matters? You know, it's not the why of it, because the why is easy. But when you really drill down and you get into the motivation of the characters, and this again, it brings me to where I'm at with what I do for a living, is understanding the motivation of people, understanding what it is that triggers, what is it that that stops them from from becoming who they want to be. And so within the novel uh, format, there really was an extraordinary exploration of these people that I knew from history, uh, and some of them I knew up close, like my parents and my brothers and so forth, uh, and people who lived in the neighborhood. But it was, again, looking at it from a character point of view. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and what are these characters doing and what motivates them? Yeah. Well, well, what's fascinating about this is that your whole journey got started with sort of documenting the, the things in your own life that had created fear and just facing that. And from that, you gained this mm-hmm. knowledge that probably to you, you were probably shocked when someone says, hey, like you're really good with this fear stuff. And you're like, what? No, that's that's like an easy thing to do. And they're like, no, no, can you help me? And so then you move into this this new career. So now with the second book, then did you work with a a, a writing coach or a story coach? Did you follow a program? Uh, did you have a process or was it very much the same way where you kind of had an idea of exactly what it needed to be? You hit the nail on the head when you said I'm an intuitive writer. I'm an intuitive person anyway. You know, it's like if somebody comes to me as a coach and says, you know, here's what's going on. I can see through the bullshit pretty quickly. You know, it's like, well, here's the story you're telling yourself. So story has been always a big piece of, of my life. And of course, it started with what's what's the story I'm telling me? You know, mm. uh, who who am I and, and how am I showing up in the world? And and that took a long time to really surface in a in a positive way. Um, I, you know, I was well into my 40s by the time I started to really get a handle on a lot of this stuff. Uh, but even into my 50s, I was still de- dealing with it. And I like to say, you know, everybody's dealing with their stuff until the day they die, you know, and then you're going out the door in a pine box and who cares, you know. Um, but I think there there is a piece to this. So the fear piece for me was, yeah, a lot of it was, well, sure, yeah, there's there's fear involved here, but we have to get past it. And, you know, the opposite of, of you know, being fearful is being courageous and people have said to me over the years you were very courageous I mean I remember going through some really really deep therapy when I was writing when the crow sings and right before and during and someone said to me why are you doing this and I said because if I don't I will die and if not I don't die physically I will die inside and and that became a real driving force for me because I, I had so much to give I had children that I needed to, you know, figure out how to live with because I had my own history with with my own kids. Um, but you know, it it was about challenging again, over and over again. Uh, and someone who you know asked my husband one year, "Who's your role model?" And he looked across the room and he said, "She is." 
because she steps into the, the discomfort. She steps into the places that are hard and most of us look at it and go, not today, thank you very much. Um, but this is why, you know, I'm known as, as a, you know, kind of no bullshit coach, if you like. Uh, I'm very direct and it doesn't work for everybody. Uh, but if you're looking for somebody who will call on your bullshit, I'm the one to do that for you. Mm. So, you know, this again became part of the fearless factor because you can't work on something being fearless if you're not going to walk the talk. Yeah. And it really, for me, is about I have literally lived uh, at these experiences. And no matter what anybody comes to me and talks to me about, I'm like, oh, yeah, I get it. I've been there, done that, know that one. Um, so it makes it much easier for me to relate to people and for them to relate to me. Because, you know, I like to say what you see is what you get. And you probably figured that out from this conversation so far. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So how long did the second book take you from the time you started thinking about it? Yeah, Uh, that one was probably about two years in the making. And uh, I wanted to make sure that I was doing my proper diligence with research. Of course. I, I, you know, I read a lot of books uh, that were about motivation and, and leadership and also fear. I mean, if you look at my bookshelf, there's you know, a dozen books on fear on my bookshelves, um, because I, I wanted to really understand it from a psychological point of view, and from the impact that it has on individual lives and the lives of those around them. You know, mm. I mean, there's no question that I, uh, you know, had this this whole thing of, of, you know, like I was a control freak, for instance, you know, what is control? Control is fear of things getting out of control. So, you know, you, you try to make sure everything around you is right. I called myself a chaos junkie for a long time. <laughs> things got too easy. Eh, I like to stir it up a bit, you know, I like the, the excitement. And then someone said to me at one point, I was in a workshop and he said, you know, that fear is the sharp edge of excitement. And I went, holy shit, is that why I've been living on the edge all my life? So, you know, that kind of added up for me. But you have to be able to come in with credibility. And and that's really, really important to me in my books. And that's why I share a lot of my own stories. And this Fearless Factor now is, that's a brand. So you're going to have other books. So like the the book we're talking about is the Fearless Factor at work, but you have the Fearless Factor with relationships and parenting and and those are coming down the pipeline, correct? Yeah. Um, The next book I'm going to be doing is is called Fearless Parenting. And uh, for that book, I, which I've just started, and it probably will be a good year in the works, but I have an awful lot going on right now, you know, getting this book out into the world. Uh, but the idea for that would be to interview parents uh, and get their take on the fears and the fearlessness of being a parent. And I've certainly got plenty of my own stories to put in that book. Uh, so we'll see where that goes. And then if you want to go to fearless relationships, I've been married for or with the same person for over 40 years. So uh, I think I know a little bit about the ups and downs. Of might, that might have some, you know, I have some pearls of wisdom to send our way. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, I could definitely share a few things, but uh, so yeah, the fearless brand is mine and, and I'm very proud of the fact that I've created this and, and really, like so much of what I've done in my lifetime, I've done it by the seat of my pants. You know, it's people say, do you have a degree in psychology? And I go, nope. But I do have a PhD in life skills. There you go. Uh, did you, know, did you, you ever see that? the um, that movie called The uh, the King's Speech? Yes. 
there's that that scene in there and the the whatever the big cathedral is where he's like well you know choirs have been made and you don't have any credentials and he's like my name says lionel logue whatever whatever there's no doctor or phd and he's like i may not have a uh college degree but i have experience with the great war and let me tell you that war was some experience yeah i always love that because i'm like yeah you know that i think we forget that some we in in western society we become so enamored with oh you need some sort of certificate or degree or you got to have college or whatever to and i see this all the time with you know cohort uh you know peers in in my business where and i've been guilty of it too you know where you keep signing up for programs in order to you know accelerate your skill set become more erudite in, in whatever it is that you're doing. Uh, you know, I've got certified in all kinds of things over the years. And, and that was part of, you know, some of it necessary because it really helped me to illuminate more the work that I was doing. So for instance, I do a lot of behavioral assessments uh, as a consultant for a company called Human Synergistics. And what we do is scientifically analyze certain behavioral styles and I can actually get very granular with the individuals. It's a 360 assessment. And I get very granular with these individuals uh, talking about what behaviors are, are working for them and which ones are not working for them. Mm-hmm. And that for me was in addition to my intuitive sense of you know, what people are doing. It gave me some more empirical evidence. And I think what I'm saying here is you know, it's, these books are, are important, but there has to be some empirical evidence in them. I can't just talk out of you know, out of whatever hole works, frankly. Um, But, you know, I think that that's a big piece. So the fearless factor, again, depending on, you know, how you're looking at it, I went to other people for their stories. It helped, uh, it helped move the book out into a different kind of realm. And the other side of my books is this, I am big on self-reflection, huge Mm. on this is the main reason why I write these books, because at the end of every chapter, there is a stream of, of, of questions that I want you to ask yourself, because if you can answer these questions honestly and really be willing to, to face your, your not only your, your strengths, but your weaknesses and know that you can change them, these books become almost like a virtual mentor or a virtual coach, mm. you know, because what do coaches do? They ask powerful questions. And they get people to think about things differently. And so I try to do that in all of my books. And uh, the neat latest one, The Fearless Factor at Work, is really taking people through some, you know, serious things. I'm now calling them power skills. We used to call them, or still call them, the emotional intelligence. But these power skills are around self-awareness, communication, uh, building trust, uh, empathy, uh, resilience, uh, you know, building your authority, uh, creating influence, you know, these are all the kind of things that are in that, the, the book, The Fearless Factor at Work. And when I saw this just recently, I was like, oh, that's what I've been writing about for the last year. Yeah. Um, well, I think so you're touching it, on something that no one else has really addressed. And it, I, I feel that it's critical, especially not just individually, but as a society, and it's that, that idea of self-awareness and reflection. And a lot, I think a lot could be said about 2020 being sort of the year that America as a country has had to do, has been sort of forced to have more self-awareness and forced to do reflection, because there's clearly some dysfunction in, 
and not the country, but the culture that we're perpetuating is what it means to be American. And in, in a lot of ways, not to turn in this this conversation into a political debate, but you know, the the with the the recent election, the the shocking fact that Donald Trump got five or six million more voters this time than last time, even after the chaos of the the first four years. And I like, yeah, along the lines, like it doesn't feel like anyone on either sort of the the spectrum has has stopped to have any sort of self awareness or to reflect on. You know what is the messaging? Not not just Donald Trump. I'm just using him as an example. But you know the same side for the for the left. I know that they they got beat pretty handily when they were expecting to sort of sweep in on this anti-Trump wave, and they didn't. And so, it, but I haven't seen anywhere where someone's coming along going, maybe we should take a moment to reflect on what's go actually going on. Instead, it just feels like again what you talk about is that both sides are just entrenched in this sort of total fear of the other people are bad and going to destroy us. And so now you have two quote sides that are at battle and they're all they're battling out of is, is, is out of a, a basis of fear. There's no self-reflection. There's no self-awareness. So how can we as just individuals, when we're surrounded by this fear on sort of a, I guess you could say a global scale, how can we understand our own fears to better cope with sort of the, the bigger societal fears that seem to be at play or at least presented to us in the mainstream media? And that's the whole yeah. conversation for another another topic on that one. Yeah, that's a, that's a whole other thing. And I can certainly, you know, expound on it. But, uh, you know, self-reflection is, is a key issue for anyone who wants to grow. Um, but I think, you know, we've been steeped in fear for the last, you know, certainly for the last four years. It's, you know, all the rhetoric is fear driven uh, and it, it's positioned from fear from an individual's point of view. I'm always asking, do you have empirical evidence that the fears that you have are real? Nine times out of 10, I'll get the answer no. I don't have empirical evidence. So can you give an example of someone who comes to you and lists like three fears and, and, and how that would apply to those? Okay, so, you know, I'm afraid of failure. That's a huge one that comes up regularly. I'm afraid of failure. So therefore I keep myself safe. I, you know, I don't take risks because I'm afraid of failure. So if I look at, you know, doing a behavioral study and I'm looking at your achievement scores and I see your achievement scores are really low, well, what about taking risks is is being avoided? You know, that would be a big question right there. Because the issue with failure is that, and I say this in my books, we are all failing our way to success. Mm. You know, we make mistakes, we, we make bad decisions, we have expectations that are not met. Uh, sometimes they cost us, sometimes it's just simply... You know, I have to admit that that didn't work out the way that I wanted it to work out. So then you're dealing with shame and humiliation and and all of the concomitant things that come about with, with regards to that. But you have to look at that fear of failure and ask yourself by dwelling in that fear of failure, which may or may not be true. You know, you don't know until you test it. Um, you know, are you stopping yourself? Are you limiting yourself from going forward? And then the answer that I get from a lot of people is, well, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so great. What would you like to do differently? Okay, so, you know, well, I would like to not feel this way. Okay, realize it's a feeling. It's not a reality. It's a feeling. It's, it's, it's engineered by your thinking. 
and your thinking controls your behavior. And the behavior and the thinking are tied up with your emotions. So when you look at the fear thing, it's an emotional response. And it rarely has any real sense of danger or, you know, the end of the world kind of thing. So, yeah, if somebody's pointing a gun at you, then, yes, there is real fear there. You know, you find yourself in, in, a, in a challenging situation where you fight or flight, which is a primitive brain on steroids, uh, which is a lot of what's going on right now, in fact. Then, of course, you know, you've got to ask yourself that self-reflective question is, is this real? And if the answer is no, um, or you know, I'm just kind of making stories up in order to feel more comfortable or putting a label on it. For instance, I'll have people who say, well, I'm fearless. I've never had any fear. And I go, oh, that's great. Ever had a time in your life when you felt a bit anxious? Oh yeah, lots of times. Okay, great. You just didn't put the label fear on it. You just said you were unsettled, that you had some insecurity about what was coming up for you next. So the ways in which we frame this are really, really critical. And most people just go into, you know, covers, pull the covers over your head and pretend that everything's just fine. But that denial and that sense of, you know, we'll make do is the place where people then come to me and go, well, I'm feeling a bit stuck. Okay, let's talk about what we think is keeping you stuck. And then they'll go into, you know, well, I got this job. I don't really like it, but, you know, it pays the bills and I got health care. And, okay, the question then becomes, so what is it costing you to stay in this place? And if it looks like you're getting too much stress, you're losing sleep, you're not having good relationships with your family, uh, you don't spend enough time with your kids, you know, these are the questions that are self-reflective questions. And this is where I, as a coach, want to be able to have that conversation with the people who come to me. And I'm looking for some answers. But I like to say, stop looking for answers and I start asking the right questions, which is why in the books, there's a lot of questions. And the first book, there's 133 questions. In the second book, there's at least 100 questions. Wow. So, you know, go forth and, and conquer whatever it is that's, that's on your brain when you read those books. And, uh, you know, a lot of people read these kind of books and they go, yeah, yeah, I'll do it later. You know, they keep reading and then they never go back to it. But at the yeah. end of The Fearless Factor, what I did was I took all the questions I asked at the end of every, every chapter and I put them all again at the end of the book. And it was like, okay, here's the gaps. Go check it out. So how would this come into play then for something that seems to be a fairly recent phenomenon, I will say, and that's this whole concept of cancel culture? Because you talked about self-reflection and self-awareness are important for us to be able to grow and evolve. And personally, I feel like there is a segment of society that is screaming for evolution while at the same time, absolutely, completely, 100% denying people the ability to grow and evolve. And the good example of this would be uh, Kevin Hart. Uh, Kevin Hart's dream was to host the Academy Awards, worked his butt off, came from a crazy background and got to the point where he was that he was going to host the Academy Awards. His lifelong dream was about and someone went back through his tweet feed and found a comment he made 12 years ago 
that was it was a joke and people found offense with it. And so they canceled him and he lost the job at the Academy Awards. And he even said and he came out and said, look, I was 22 years old when I made that joke. I, I that was before I was in Hollywood. That was before I understand those issues. I have never made a joke like that since that time because I've grown and I've evolved and I understood that wasn't appropriate. And the response was, yeah, but you said something homophobic 10 years ago. You're homophobic. You're a bigot. You're always going to be a bigot. Mm -hmm. And so I have friends that they have really powerful things to say, but they don't do it because they say this could be controversial. And if I say it, someone could be offended and could try to cancel me. So how do we deal with a, a, a fear like that? Okay. So Kevin Hart is, as an example is, you know, he took complete responsibility for it. He said, you're right. You know, it was, it was incorrect. I was young. I was stupid. We've all said stupid things throughout our lives. No, none of us are guilt-free as far as that's concerned. But the intolerance that comes out of this so-called cancel culture, uh, you know, which puts people in a state of, I am better than you. Now, here's my take on this. We can all go around with an arrogance that says I'm better than you. But the truth of the matter is we're all fallible. We all have stuff that, that we can be ashamed of, if you like. There's always there's something lurking in the background that you don't want to talk about. But I'm of a mind that if you talk about it, you basically take the, 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 the skeletons out of the cupboard, if you like. And I just air it out because what you'll see is that a lot of people will nod their head and go, yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. And they think you're courageous and you're brave for sharing all of this. I hear this all the time with regards to my books. You're awfully brave to be able to share those stories the way you do. And I share them on my speaking platform too. But the truth of the matter is it's a story and that's all it is, you know. But when people put too much weight into that story and want to play a, a kind of a righteous role, if you like, because that's what cancel culture is. It's a righteous role. And frankly, I have no patience with it whatsoever, you know, because I think that, you know, who are you to make yourself greater than the person you're pointing a finger at? Mm -hmm. None of us are guilt-free, none of us. But that's my take on it. So cancel culture is bullshit. That's, that's the way I look at it. Yeah, I feel the same way. And at the same time, it does definitely create fear with people and it holds them back. So let's talk yeah, about that then. How, how do we deal with, with because fear will limit our potential. So right. what are some of the ways that starts manifesting it? Let's say in the, in the work uh, scenario here, since that's so what we're talking about. So people who keep their head down and, and don't want to rock the boat. Okay, decision-making. You, you go into a workplace and you look at the number of people who are just doing their work, keeping their head down. They don't have an opinion. And if there is an opinion, it's usually a negative one. They'll push back, oppositional. It's like, no, that's a bad idea, not going there. Or the other side of that, of course, is you get the, the passive aggressive stuff, you know, where, you know, people are busy trying to make sure that you like me and I'm doing okay. So there's that constant checking in thing that takes place. So, you know, there, there is that piece within the work environment where, I, again, it's fear-driven. Again, it's not, I, you know, here's the, the two things that come up for fear. I'm not good enough and I'll never be loved. Mm. That is fundamental 
to fear, no matter what label you want to put on it. It comes down to those two things that I am not good enough and I'll never be loved. Now, again, I'm going to point out, you know, are there things that you're good, you're good at? Oh, yeah, there's a lot of things I'm good at. Okay, great. But you choose to focus. It's like, you know, if you give somebody a, a feedback review and it's generally glowing, but there's one thing in there that is not quite right, that needs to be improved upon. Where's the focus going to be? On that it's one good. thing. Yeah, on that one thing. You know, you completely blot out all of the good stuff. And I think that's that's a big problem for, you know, what, what we're dealing with in our society because there's an awful lot of focus on what's wrong and, and not a lot on uh, what's right. Did you see uh, John, what's his face, who was in the office who did the, the good news? Uh, oh, yeah, John Krasinski, the Good News Network. Yeah, Krasinski. I mean, that was so uplifting that, you know, he focused on nothing but good news for his show. And he had a very limited run. He wasn't really interested in doing, you know, chat, you know, lots and lots of episodes of this. But he focused the attention on the good stuff. And we tuned into it because it made us feel good. Instead of tuning into CNN and some more of, of the machinations of Donald Trump and his entourage, uh, you know, so it's where you put your focus. This is really a big piece on this, Travis. Where are you putting your focus? Because if you're going to be really focusing on all the, the bullshit, as I like to keep saying, then you're going to find yourself making that your reality. Mm -hmm. So how would you like to create a reality that, yeah, you recognize that that's out there, it's going on. Uh, but I choose to focus on the positive. I choose to focus on the good things that are happening, because there is an awful lot of good in the world. But with with everything is going on right now, if your focus is all on the negatives, well, that's gonna kind of how you're gonna live your life is in that negative zone. Yeah, yeah, it's very true. So if someone's interested in your work, how can they get to know more about you? How can they get in contact with you? How can they be brought into your world? Well, thank you for that. Um, there's two ways. You can go to my website, which is uh, thefearlessfactoratwork.com, and you can download the fear excerpt from my book on there. And uh, the other way, of course, is go buy my books, which are on Amazon, and you can find them there. Uh, so that's, that's two of the ways in which you can get to me. My website has a ton of information and resources in there, too. Uh, as well as good articles that you can read on why these things are important that we've talked about today. Uh, and then if you want to contact me, my contact form is also on the website. But go visit the, the website, thefearlessfactoratwork.com, and help yourself. There's a lot on there. that can Sounds like uh, we need to get your book in as many hands as possible so we can get some people doing some self-reflection. There you go. Heaven knows. We all need it at this point in time. We all do, and including me. And I, I have, you know, every day I have to ask myself, how, how's this working for you? <laughs> That's a good question. Well, Jacqueline, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a real treat. My pleasure, Travis. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, it's Travis Cody. Thanks for listening to The Just Right Show. And I want to make sure you're plugged into everything we've got going on. 
Go to traviscody.com forward slash show and join the email list so you can get notified when new episodes come out. Plus, you can find links to the transcripts of every episode we've done in the past. You can also grab a free copy of my best-selling books that share even more details on how you can up-level your own writing skills. Finally, if you enjoyed the show, I'd consider it a personal favor if you'll leave me a review on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode.